Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And welcome to episode 9. Now, I for one am really excited about this episode, and let me tell you why. Why? The past 9 episodes, uh, we've basically been going on little documentation, old writings from missionaries, and uh, third-party points of view. This episode... We actually get first-hand account from a professional map maker, a professional geographer, a professional warrior, a lieutenant governor, and a very, very educated, unbiased guy. Did we mention that's all the same person? Yes. That's all the same person. And that man's name is Samuel D. Champlain. Ooh, very proper. Very French. Yes. <laughs> uh, so let's let's talk about this guy a little bit. Uh, this guy was born in Bruges, France. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Forgive me, I have literally... Uh... One people group we don't have to worry about offending. It's the French, so... <laughs> Samuel was born in a, what you would call at the time a middle-class French family. He lived, you know, on a port town... And uh, with the economics of the 16, late 1500s, the world is really starting to boom. Trade is starting to, you know, just start jumping up everywhere with all these countries in Europe. And so a lot of these port towns really started to see a big economic boom. And he was from a family that was middle class, but they were kind of starting to grow with this boom because his uncle had ships and his father worked his way up the ladder all the way from a midshipman to being a boat owner and a boat captain. Mm -hmm. So he learned from a young age how to sail and navigate. So by the time he was in his teens, he was already very comfortable on a ship. Now we're going to fast forward into his 20s. And this is a very interesting thing. He turns 27 years old. And he's made the royal geographer. Wow, so how do you swing that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And there's been a lot of speculation on that. A uh, 27-year-old guy from a middle-class family is becomes the royal geographer of all France. And there's actually some interesting rumors on why that could be. There's been rumors passed down for hundreds of years that Samuel may have actually been the bastard son of Henry the Fourth, King of France. That sounds like a National Enquirer article. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you don't want to give too much credit to it because it's a rumor, but if you look at some of the things that happen in his life, he literally it becomes friends with Henry the Fourth, and is basically looked after in everything he does by Henry the Fourth, And then he's given this royal position at 27 years old. And also, we see later in his life that uh, the queen really hates him, which also, if you ever see Game of Thrones, with uh, <laughs> it, it, it just tends to be that way. You really hate the bastard son. So, uh, so regardless, either that's an interesting tidbit, or it just goes to show how remarkable of a person he was, even at a young age, that the king would take note of him. And we do know that he really was remarkable in his intelligence. If you remember back to uh, an episode we did a ways back on hunting and fishing, the sketch that we sh showed on our website 
of them doing the deer drive, Champlain drew that himself. And there's dozens of other uh, different sketches also that we'll be posting and talking about. And they're really well done. Mm -hmm. He was an artist. So in the year 1603, Champlain gives up his royal geographer position. And he wants to go to North America. So he takes this position as kind of an unofficial geographer and cartographer for this trade, this uh, fur trading trip that's going to North America because he's curious about this place. He's heard great things about it. You know, there's all this tension and turmoil in Europe at this time between uh, Catholics and Protestants. And then on top of that, you know, uh, basically atheists that just want to go and capture countries in the name of God and they're using this as an excuse and hundreds of thousands of people are being killed and Champlain has this idea deep in his mind you know is is there somewhere else out there that we can get that I can get away from all this so he's excited and he he basically like I said he he becomes the unofficial he basically is a tag along but he's an educated tag along so that's why they give him this unofficial cartographer uh position and the king says okay you go with them and draw me some maps of this place he knows how talented this guy is so Champlain in 1603 heads to North America now we had mentioned back in our episode on Jacques Cartier that he had tried to establish a colony in North America and it failed. And so this is about 60 years later. And all that's really going on in North America now is people doing fishing trips and short-term trading posts. Yeah, drive the boat up, trade some metal and trinkets for furs, and sail back. Yep. So there's no permanent colonies there at the moment. All right, so like Caleb said, in 1603, he comes to um, Tadoussac, which was a fishing trading post on the St. Lawrence River. He came with his uncle, who was actually captaining the ship. And... From 1604 to 1607, he participated in exploring the settlement, and he even went around to Arcadia, which is modern-day Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, and even sailed around looking at um, northern Florida exploring. Um, Finally, he came back on another trip in 1608, and he landed at a place called Pointe Quebec, and he started trying to set up a colony. He had looked at what Jacques had done, and realized that he had failed horribly. So he wanted to try and start a colony here on the St. Lawrence River. So he started by putting up three wooden buildings, two stories tall, and they called the place the Habitation. And they put a stockade around it. And that is the founding of Quebec, which is the first permanent city, European city, in modern-day Canada. And so this is why Champlain is called the father of New France. He, um... He begins to get very friendly with the local peoples, especially the Huron and the Algonquin people, and even um, the Montagnier. So there's all these different people groups there. And unlike some of the conquistadors that put the focus of conquering these people and using them as slaves, Champlain actually built relationships with them, and he wanted to focus on trade. You know, he wanted to dwell among them. He didn't want to conquer them, but he did want to take some land to start a colony. Mm -hmm. But the focus was on living together. Yeah, when the English came over, we'll notice throughout history that we're constantly pushing the Native Americans further and further and further away from us. Samuel Champlain had a completely opposite approach. He kept in, he would go around and become, make 
make friendships with these nations, and then he would ask them to move closer. Mm-hmm. He would send some of his men to go and live with each nation in their longhouses, and then he would ask them to send people to come and live with them. Yep, so they could learn language and culture. It was yep. like, you know, they send high school kids on these cross-cultural <clears throat> exchange students. Mm-hmm. That's what he was doing. So he'd send some of his young men, some of them even kids. Yeah, and some he would send right back to France. He'd say, go live in France for a year, I'll bring you back. And this became a normal thing. Every time he'd come back, he'd take some new Indians back to France. It wasn't like Cartier where he was pretty much kidnapping them. Mm -hmm. This was a much more amiable way to trade. And they were trading back and forth. And Champlain, now that's not to say that not everybody that came with him didn't have their uh, scruples a little... uh, not so nice. But um, he, he was focused on making sure that they didn't sell alcohol to the locals. They didn't sell guns. He really wanted to focus on friendships and, um, and trade. Mm-hmm. He's quoted saying that we will become one family. Your daughters will marry our sons and our sons will marry your daughter. And it really goes to show that he, he didn't think of these people as lesser humans. He just realized that they came from a different culture, and he wanted to not only convert them, but you know, convert into them as well. Maybe change their some of their spiritual outlook, but not change them as a people. Mm-hmm. So it's very ahead of the time. Uh, even today, there's you know nations that struggle with doing this correctly. Um, that being said, there was a lot of pressure on him because when you're allies with somebody. Not only do you trade with them, but they also expect you to fight for them. Mm-hmm. That's just part of the Native American culture. If you're an ally with us, you know you need to help us out. Because the Huron and the Algonquin and the Montagnier had these enemies. And who were they? Yeah, this is the first time that he probably hears the word that we've talked about before, Iroquois, which was their derogatory term for the Haudenosaunee. Yeah. And so... You know, he's hearing about this. Also in his journals, he talks about times where Iroquois people have been captured on raids. And so he meets some of them and usually gets to witness the torture that happens to them. And uh, he is, you know, if there's one thing that Champlain uh, judges and is absolutely upset by, it's torture. It's true. He has no toleration for it whatsoever. And he scolds the Huron and the Algonquin for it every time he sees it happen. Mm Mm-hmm. At one point, they capture an Iroquois warrior after a battle, and he, I'm not, I don't think we're going to go into the description of all the torture. Are we going to do that? No, we've already covered what happens. um, But, you know, they're halfway through the torture, and uh, they tell him, hey, you want to get in on this, basically? And he says, no, this, this is evil. This is bad. We don't do this where I come from. And they said, well, this is our way. And he storms off angry. And they see how angry he is, and he says, I'll, I'll shoot him. And they said, no, you can't shoot him. We need him to suffer more. And he says, uh, he, he goes away angry, and they see how upset he is, and they say, fine, you can shoot him. And Champlain comes up and puts him out of his misery mm-hmm. because they're, you know, <laughs> doing all sorts of really bad stuff. Yeah. So anyway, so after a year, it's the summer of 1609, and they're saying, you know, Champlain, we really would like you to come with us to help do a battle against the Iroquois. They're coming in, they're raiding, they're stealing our women and children, they're scalping our men. You know, they are 
they're the boogeyman. The Iroquois, just in the whole region, are known as the most ferocious. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends which side you're on. Yeah. But and in particular, the Mohawks. Yes, in particular, the Mohawks, because they're the closest proximity to. Uh, Quebec, the St. Lawrence River. And they've been known for hundreds of years as the most fearsome northeastern warriors. They're the keepers of the eastern door, and so they got to live up to that expectation. So he gets up, uh, forms a, what would you call it? Uh, A UN? Yeah, uh, a NATO alliance. So they get um, some Huron people, some Algonquin people, some Montagnier, and then also um, some Frenchmen. And they start out, Quebec is on the St. Lawrence River, and then there's another little river that drains into it. At the time, it was called the River of the Iroquois, because it led to the Mohawk area. Today, it's called the Richelieu River. You ever heard of the guy named Richelieu? I don't think so. Well, did you ever see the Three Musketeers? Yeah. You know the guy that's the the cardinal? or The, 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 one, the one played by John Kerry? The Weasley Cardinal? John Kerry? No, not John Kerry. Or what's his name? Tim Curry. Yes. John Kerry, Tim Curry. <laughs> Close enough. A little enough. different. <laughs> it's named after him. Really? Yeah. That's. I think I do remember reading that. Basically, he was commissioned by the Cardinal, because the Cardinal's also in politics. Yeah. And he, he was named it after him, basically, so when he sent the map back, he could say, look here, I named a river after you. Yeah, you're right. I, do, I didn't realize it was the same one from the Three Musketeers story, though, but it kind of makes sense, because he had this reputation of being... A cardinal, but he was basically just a politician scumbag. And well, in the book, he is. Uh, other historians put him in a little lighter light, but yeah, he was a powerful guy for a long time. Anyway, so they start sailing up the Richelieu River, also called the River of the Iroquois, and they reach this large, winding lake. And that lake is Lake Champlain. Did you know that that's the only thing that Champlain ever named after himself? Yeah. Out of all the years of exploring. Okay, so let's talk about this first battle. This battle took place on Lake Champlain, which, if you look at a map, is in the northeast region of the Adirondacks in New York. Yeah, it borders southern Canada, New York, and Vermont. Mm-hmm. And uh, it very close to where the fort Ticonderoga took place. And it, for any of you revolutionary buffs... There was a very important battle there. The Battles. Uh, in the Revolutionary War, in the Wilderness War, it was called. So Champlain had been traveling to fight the Mohawk and the Iroquois for several days. And I was going to just kind of talk about what he did, but he put such good detail into it himself, so I thought I would read some from you. But this is trans- he translated it from... It was translated from French, so what I did is I, I kind of reworked it into to modern English, so hopefully you guys can understand a little better what's going on. Quote, ish. Now as we began to get within two or three days' journey of the home of their enemy, we proceeded only by night, and during the day we rested. Nevertheless, we kept up with the usual superstitious ceremonies in order to know what would happen to them. They would often come and ask me whether I had dreams and if I had seen the Iroquois in my dreams. I told them that I'd not, but I continued to inspire them with courage and good hope. 
When night came on, we set off on our way until the next morning. Then we retired into the thick woods and we spent the rest of the day. Around uh, 10 or 11 o'clock, after walking around our camp, I went to rest, and while asleep, I dreamed that I saw a lake near a mountain, and I saw the Iroquois drowning. I wanted to help them, but our Indian allies said to me that we should let them all perish because they were evil men. When I awoke, they asked if I'd had a dream. I told them what I saw. This gave them such confidence that they no longer had any doubt that they would be victorious. Evening came, and we embarked in our canoes. We were paddling, very quietly, without making any noise. It was about 10 o'clock at night on the 29th of the month. At the edge of the cape that sticks out on the lake, on the west side, we met the Iroquois on their warpath. Both they and we began to utter loud shouts at each other and to get our arms ready. We drew out into the lake and the Iroquois landed and arranged all their canoes near one another. They began to fell trees with axes and barricade themselves. Our Indians all night long also kept their canoes close to one another and tied the poles so that they would not get separated. This way we could fight together if need be. We were on the water within bowshot of their barricades. And when they were armed, and everything was in order, two canoes went ahead from the rest to learn if the enemy wished to fight. And the Iroquois replied that they did. But it was getting too dark, and it's necessary to wait for daylight in order to distinguish one another. They said that, as soon as the sun should rise, they would attack us. And to this, our Indians agreed. Meanwhile, the whole night was spent dancing and singing on both sides, with many insults and other remarks, such as the lack of courage on one side, or how little we could do to resist against them. And when daylight came, our people would learn all of this to their ruin. Our side, too, mocked the enemy, telling them that they would see such deeds of arms that they had never seen and many other insults. Having sung and danced and flung words at one another for hours, daylight finally came. My companions and I were still hidden to keep the enemy from knowing our presence. We began to get our firearms ready the best we could, considering we were all tucked away in separate Montagnier canoes. After we were armed with light weapons, we each took an arquebus and went ashore. I saw the enemy come out of the barricade to the number of 200 men. They appeared very strong. They came slowly to meet us with courage and calm that I admired. And at their head were three chiefs. Our Indians likewise advanced in similar order and told me that those who had the three big plumes were the chiefs. You could recognize them by these plumes because they were larger than those worn by their companions and I was to do what I could to kill them. I promised to do all in my power, and I told them that I was very sorry that they could not understand me. That way, I could coordinate the attack on the enemy. As soon as the fight began, the courage and readiness built up in me. 
As soon as we landed, our Indians began to sprint some 200 yards towards their enemy, who stood firm. The Iroquois had not noticed me or my white companions who went off into the woods with some Indians. Our Indians began to yell to me with loud cries. When I walked forward, they divided into two groups and put me ahead some 20 yards. I marched until I was within some 30 yards of the enemy, who, as soon as they caught sight of me, halted and gazed at me and I at them. When I saw them make a move to draw their bows upon me, I took aim with my arquebus and shot at one of the three chiefs, and with the single shot two chiefs fell to the ground, and one of their braves was wounded who died a little later. I had put four bullets into my arquebus, and soon our people saw this shot so favorable for them that they began to shout so loudly that no one could have heard thunder. And meanwhile, the arrows flew all around us. The Iroquois were amazed that two men could be killed so quickly. Although they were provided with shields made of cotton thread woven together in wood, which was proof against these arrows, this frightened them greatly. And as I was reloading my arquebus, one of my companions fired a shot from within the woods, which astonished them again so much that seeing their chiefs dead, they lost courage and ran abandoning the fields and their fort. I pursued them and shot as many as I could before they disappeared into the trees. Our Indians also killed several and took ten or twelve prisoners. The rest of the Iroquois fled with their wounded. Of our Indian, fifteen or sixteen were wounded with arrows, but they quickly healed. After we had gained the victory, our Indians wasted no time in taking large quantities of Indian corn and meal belonging to the enemy, as well as their shields, which they left behind. Having feasted and danced and sung for three hours, we set off for home with the prisoners. So that is the first encounter between the Iroquois and a European power. Uh, a lot of historians point to Champlain screwing up and causing hostilities between the Iroquois and the French for the next 200 years. Yeah, and some people also notice that there's 30 years of peace after these battles, too, between uh, the Iroquois and the Huron and Montagnier. you got to imagine this. So you're out on a war party. It's I think he said there was several hundred of these Iroquois, and by the time Champlain fights this battle, it's 60 of his native allies and two other French guys and himself. So you're looking at 63 versus several hundred, and they absolutely rout them mm -hmm. because they've never seen guns before. Mm -hmm. When you see, when you hear a loud noise and your three chiefs fall dead, or two fall dead, and one is laying on the ground wounded, what's to make you think that they can't just do that over and over and over and over? Guns are so common in our society, we just know what a gun is, but... Just to see somebody holding a stick and this loud thunder comes from somewhere and, you know, you don't even see the balls travel. Mm -hmm. And like you and like he said, uh, you know, they wore armor to protect against arrows on their body and torso. And obviously a, a musket ball is going to travel right through mm -hmm. cloth and wood. Also, these weren't muskets like in the Pocahontas film where they got the, you know, the, the match lock. These were arquebus which were very expensive and kind of state-of-the-art wheel lock firearms 
these were basically the precursor to the rifles. Uh, and because he came from well, a family, he had some of these, which a lot of the early people didn't. These were not primitive, just a pipe that you put a ball in. Yeah. So um, they start to travel back. This is the story where we mentioned earlier where um, Champlain sees the torture and is disgusted and ends up killing the, the one guy in the back of the head because he doesn't want to see him suffer. So they do take some more prisoners alive. They sail back up the Champlain uh, Lake, up the river, back to the St. Lawrence. And when they get back, there's a big celebration. Uh, the Huron people come out and greet. The women jump into the lake and grab the scalps from the slain prisoners. And then um, they start partitioning off the remaining captives to send back, you know, between the the Montagnier and the Algonquin and the Huron, they divide them up, and Champlain's trying to beg for their lives because he knows what's going to happen to them, but his allies aren't having any of it, and uh, you can only imagine what happens to them. So stuff that's not really important to our narrative, sometimes Champlain continues to work in Quebec, does some mini-exploring, and then he sails back to France, meets with the king, shows him some gifts, the king's really impressed, and then the following year he comes back to Canada, right, Caleb? Right. So he's coming back, and so now it's 1610. And then in June, uh, you know, he's well-renowned within the community, and they're saying, oh, Champlain, Champlain, oh, this is so great. Will you come out with us again? You know, last time was so great. Man, those were great times, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, sure they were. Anyway, he agrees because they're allies that um, they'll go out on another warpath. Well, as they're getting ready to go on their way, um, some other people have gone before him and he's supposed to meet up with them as they're traveling down. But there's uh, another contingent of Mohawk that are already heading up on a retaliatory raid from the previous year. And so they meet on the way, just shortly into their trip. And so this was uh, June 19th, 1610. Some people start running back to Champlain like, Wait, there's Mohawk here! They're here now! Come quick, come quick, come quick! And so he's rushing, and sure enough, there's a battle already in progress. So just like last time, the Mohawk had set up a little perimeter with felled trees and brush. The same thing had happened again. There was 100 Mohawk held up in this little mini fort that they had erected. And so you've got the Huron and Algonquin allies there trying to take this little fort. And it's practically impossible because arrows can't get through the wood, and there's just one small crevice little opening, uh, so they're at a standoff, they're at a stalemate. But Champlain shows up, and what does Champlain have? Guns. So when Champlain finally arrives, he sees the situation, sees that the, the little mini fort has been set up. There's no way that the, uh, the allied Indians can get in. They've tried to attack a couple times and people have fallen dead. So he starts coordinating the attack and he's there with some of his soldiers and they've got their guns and they start going up to the, the wooden barrier and sticking through little holes and shooting in and it's really starting to change the tide of battle. But still, 
he starts coming up with other ideas. He's like, all right, you guys go over here and start chopping down these trees and see if you can get the trees to fall on him. And you guys grab some ropes and try and start pulling the walls down so that we can get in. And meanwhile, other guys are shooting and covering, and he's got other guys grabbing shields to cover the guys that are trying to chop down the trees. And finally, they get to a point where they've created a wide enough opening where they can charge in. And so they're getting out their swords, and other Indians have their tomahawks and their axes and their guns, and they lead a charge in, and once they get to the entrance, there's just no resistance. The the Iroquois Mohawk that are in there have been totally uh, beaten, and 85 of the 100 are killed, leaving only 15 left that are taken prisoner right there on the spot. Uh, it wasn't without casualties. Uh, like I said, other allies had been killed. Champlain, while he's coordinating everything, gets shot. An arrow comes across and gets him in the neck and uh, takes off a piece of his ear. And he's he's there giving orders and barking. And then it shoots him in the neck and he pulls it out. Uh, it leaves his ear permanently disfigured slightly. And um, whenever he uh, showed up to different Indian camps, they would always ask, can we touch your ear? They were very impressed that he had taken a, a war wound in battle with them. Once things calm down, they start to pillage and loot, but there's not really anything there. There's just the clothes that the guys were wearing, basically, and they're all bloodstained. Uh, the real prize was the prisoners and the prestige that came along with it. So they started to divide up the 15 prisoners uh, to take back to their different neighboring towns uh, Champlain, of course, as always, is begging and pleading, you know, don't kill them, don't kill them. And uh, the guys are like, oh, oh, we won't, we won't, we'll treat them well, we'll just use them as leverage. Champlain doesn't believe them. He does convince them to let one of uh, the men be taken into his charge. He, you know, he declares that, you know, I helped in this battle, and so one of them belongs to me. And they relent, and they give him one guy. And, uh, uh, he is tortured slightly, not by Champlain, but beforehand, before he finally gets him taken over. And um, Champlain is grateful that he spared the life of one person, uh, makes the guy promise that he won't run away. The guy promises, but after a few weeks, uh, he's allowed to walk around and he has a guard, but he escapes. Uh, this comes back and uh, people think uh, that Champlain let him go on purpose because uh, he was really a double agent trying to connive and conspire to get the Iroquois to come and conquer them. These were just rumors and gossip that was being spread around by people that really didn't care for him. But by and large, he was still a very popular man. But that was the one thing that the, they always brought up. They said, oh, well, you let that Mohawk guy go. And Champlain's like, yes, 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 he escaped. I know, I know. They were always bringing it up to him whenever they had anything against him. So that's a pretty... You know, we talked in the Morning Wars, Caleb, about how battles usually were not these big conflicts. That one right there, 100 Mohawk, 85 of them killed, 15 captured. It's amazing to think, you never really picture these Northeast Indian warriors fighting in forts, wearing armor, a set of cotton and wood, and, uh, you know, it you always just picture them stalking through the forest, but their warfare actually changed as soon as guns got into the equation. I think we mentioned this before. They had to adapt to fighting 
the Europeans and the, the, especially once they start trading, the Dutch start trading with the the Indians and giving them guns, they had to completely change their style of warfare to adapt. Mm-hmm. But this is a huge, huge defeat for the Mohawk. I mean, you lose a hundred people, and we already talked about how disease was ravaging both sides. You lose a hundred warriors plus the battle before that happened the year before. I mean, this is more massive than that one. So we're looking at some pretty major defeats here. Shortly after this battle, um, Champlain gets some news. A ship comes in, and it's got some pretty dire dispatches. Uh, turns out that the king has been assassinated. That's King Henry IV yeah. of France. King Henry was... He was trying to keep everybody happy, and nobody was happy. Mm-hmm. He was trying to tolerate the Protestants in a Catholic France. And people accused him of being a Protestant, which he he wasn't. If you look at his lifestyle, he was he wasn't really a very moral guy. Mm-hmm. But he did believe in religious equality to a point. He kind of believed that uh, you should take money from anybody, whether they're a Catholic or a Protestant. And he realized that it was good for the economy to not be at war. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like he said. He pissed the Catholic Church off because he was leaning to the Protestants, and the Protest- but at the same time, the Protestants were still kind of pressed down upon by the Catholics, so they were mad at the king for not doing anything about it. So a Catholic radical who thought that King Henry wasn't pure enough uh, came up to him in his carriage one day when he was out in the city and shot him. King died there. And that throws a wrench into the cog of uh, Champlain's life mm-hmm. because he's best buds with the king. And what does Champlain do? He gets back to France because he realizes if he doesn't get back there quick, his whole project could dry up yeah. without support. Pic- picture, you know, picture any movie or any realistic political thing where you've got people that are for you and people that are against you, but you are a month away and you can't defend yourself in court when you're in America. So once the king dies, he basically ends up going back to France every single year. For He'll spend a year in France, and then he'll come back for a year. Because he needs to draw up support. He's constantly trying to get investors. Because you're thinking about these hundred people in this settlement that he's trying to do. And they need food and supplies. They're not just living off the land. There's no, there's no metal... Uh, there's no smelters or anything for their supplies. They don't have farms and stuff up and running yet. They haven't even learned how to hunt in this country. So he's constantly going back and trying to get money and trying to get, basically make friends with powerful people in court. Mm -hmm. And we should mention that the new king is a child. And so now who's in charge? It's the queen. She's the regent. And you've got Richelieu also. So you've got a young child king... And it's the queen and this other guy that are running the show now. A queen that doesn't really care about New France at all. She would rather uh, use money in other places. So he eventually does secure the funding and the the contacts that are needed, gets new investors, and he heads back. But his real passion is he wants to do more exploring. He wants to see what there is on this continent. And so, you know, the other people keep trying to get him to go back on the warpath, and he's like, dudes, look, I've already gone out with you twice. I'll go out with you again, but first, you've got to show me this place. He started trying to find, again, the Northwest Passage, seeing how far deep in the continent went, if he could find uh, a way 
to find a body of water on the other side to get to Asia. They told him about Hudson Bay, and they said it was close by, mm-hmm. and he didn't really believe them, and he was right. It wasn't close by. So he was led on a wild goose chase. <laughs> um, but in 1615, he starts making a circuit, and he's going around southern Ontario, meeting up with different peoples, building a, a larger coalition, and he agrees that, all right, we're going to do one more attack. And this time, we're not going for the, the small fruit. We're going for the big bananas. We're going to the capital of the Onondaga, the seat of the Iroquois Confederacy. And we're going to strike a blow at their largest city to send a message. So they, they came down in September. They crossed across Lake Ontario and came down and then sailed up the Oneida River coming to the main city of the Onondaga. Now, this thing was huge. Um, It was a a four-row stockaded settlement with towers and a catwalk running around, and it had gutters with water in it to put out fires, and, you know, it had hundreds of longhouses and incredibly well defended, so much so that they called it a castle. This is the last documented battle Champlain had with the Iroquois. So the the sailing party comes down off Oneida Lake, and they meet up with a family of Onondaga that are coming down to do some fishing. And they capture them, basically. Yeah, capture them. And one of the guys comes right over and grabs one of the women and chops her finger off. And Samuel's like, oh, well, war is war. (laughs) No. Samuel was very angry at this and he chastised the uh the indian that did this and said uh why would you do this what what's the honor in chopping off a girl's finger she's defenseless the only defense she has is her tears he says Mm -hmm. and he says if you're going to act like this then i'm not going to have the heart to fight with you because this is barbaric and inhumane yeah and so the guy says fine I'll only do it to the men. (laughs) I could just see Champlain shaking his head like, why am I doing this? So they finally come to the the fort, the castle, the capital of the Onondaga. And this isn't like the the other two battles where it's they get there the night before and start cutting down trees and make a palisade circle. This is their city. Yeah, this is like the capital city of the Haudenosaunee. Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, The thing had four layers of stockaded palisades. And then it had like a catwalk going around the top. And we're talking like 30, 15 to 30 feet high palisades with only a small little entrance. And you got to wrap around to get into the place. And then it's got guard towers. And then in addition to that, they've got wooden gutters that fill with rainwater just in case somebody tries to set fire to the fort to put the stuff out. And so Champlain... He's a European, right, Caleb? Mm-hmm. And so what's he thinking? He's thinking siege towers. He's thinking battering rams. He's thinking, well, maybe not ballistas. But, uh, but yeah, he's thinking siege towers. He's thinking medieval Europe siege mm-hmm. on a castle. This is, this is like a castle, so I've read about this. Uh, yeah, so he starts getting this big elaborate plan in mind. And the problem is his companions are not trained military Soldiers. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that he could have been successful if he had 200 French 
uh, marines. But yeah, these are these are warriors, but they have no concept of ever needing to do a siege. And so he's telling them, all right, we're going to build this tower, and uh, you guys do covering fire, and we're going to bring this tower up, build it high up to the wall, and our guys will get up with guns, and we'll start shooting down in. And while that's happening, we'll bring some other guys over with shields and start a fire. How successful is it? Well, it sounds like a good idea. Like, mm-hmm. if, if I was there and he was telling me this idea, I'd say, hey, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. But like you said, these people, these Indians are there to fight. Uh, they don't, they're like, okay, so now we're building this tower. You know, it's com- completely different mindset for them. And it just goes horribly wrong. Yes. Nobody listens to what he says because they don't understand. Uh, they try to light a fire. But the Iroquois, uh, the Onondaga are right there on top, and they just throw the water down and put it out. The wind's not favorable. They're, they're hurling arrows at them. They're hurling stones down at them. Mm-hmm. And this goes on for five, six days. Yeah. And then when things don't seem like they can get any worse... They get worse. Um, people don't listen to them. They charge headlong at this castle. It kind of reminds me of... a. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> They're charging the castle with just swords. Whacking their swords Whacking on the their wall. swords at the wall. And they're just throwing stuff down at them and launching cows at them. Um, Champlain is screaming, guys, you, the wind has shifted. We need to go to this side and, and start a fire. And they're not having it. And Champlain's out there. And as the old adage goes, Champlain takes an arrow to the knee. I used to be an explorer like you, but then I took an arrow to the knee. He gets shot twice, once in the knee and once in the leg. And they cart him off the battlefield and bring him back to their camp. And uh, Champlain's still trying <laughs> to get this going. He's like, okay, here's what we do. He's laying there, can't move. He's like, if we just try this. And they say, we're done. So how far is this from New France? Well, this is the modern-day city of Syracuse. So Syracuse is central New York. We're talking several hundred miles back to Quebec. Um, so they, Champlain can't walk. So they make this, like, uh, you ever see those baby baskets that you carry the kid on with the backpack? For, like, the 20-pound the kid? Mm-hmm. Well, they built one of those for Champlain. <laughs> And he describes it being the most miserable experience of his life. I can't imagine. Having broken uh, flint inside your kneecap and then being carried on a backpack for hundreds of miles. I think that he didn't even get back until like the following... He had to winter. Well, they, they did get to the lake and they crossed the lake. And then, yeah, they stayed and wintered. They didn't go back to Quebec directly. Yeah, so he had to stay with a screwed up knee... With the Huron, right? Yeah. He lived with them for the they winter. They said, we're, we're staying here for the winter. And he, he wanted to go home, and they said, we're not going. We've gone far enough. So this is the last battle he fights with the Iroquois Caleb, but he's still around for another 20 years. So what does he do in the remaining time? Well, he continues to explore. He continues to build relationships. His wife ends up coming over, his young wife, and she she's noted for saying a really cool thing where... Uh, the the Indians grow to love her. She comes over and she works with them. She teaches them. She opens a school and works as like a nurse to help them when they're sick. And she has this pendant on her neck 
and this is I'm just going to tell you this because it's really really cute story. But they they ask her, why do I see my face on your chest? And she says, because you're so close to my heart. And so they just continue to grow in in love and respect for each other for for 20, 30 years. Yeah, he actually adopts three um, native girls. Yep, he adopts three young uh, Huron girls, I believe. I think they're Huron, yeah. Um, and they, they, they grow up with him. He continues to go back and forth to France, drumming up support and sailing back and forth. Uh, he eventually has a stroke, and uh, about a month after he has the stroke, he dies. I think it was right around Christmas, 1635. And for a long time after this... He kind of fell out of, no. I mean, he's known today as the father of New France, but for a long time history, he kind of got a snub from history's point of view. It wasn't until people started researching, because he was never the governor of New France. He was basically like the lieutenant governor. He never actually had the title of being the regent in charge of the area. Although he was. Although he was, because he was the only one there, but he never officially was. Uh, so in the history books, it always said this guy was in charge of New France. And lots of his works weren't translated till much later. Mm-hmm. So he ends up becoming known as the father of New France. And he just played a, an amazing role. Even though he was an enemy with the Iroquois, he gives us some of the best descriptions. I'd encourage anybody to go. You can find them. You can find them all online. Just, just research Chamel de Champlain and writings of the Iroquois. And he gives some just amazing accounts. Because without him, we don't have any pre-contact. I mean, this is contact, but we don't see the battles, mm-hmm. understanding the warfare beforehand, because nobody had witnessed it. So it's very invaluable information. Um, also, some of these governors that are going to come after are, don't have share the ideals that Champlain has. Some of them really could care less. Yeah, some of them have, you know, the the ideal that. I think stereotype shows, you know, just the the, the greedy. rich, the greedy, rich white people coming over trying to exploit the natives for their food and land. Mm-hmm. But Champlain, we can see that at least him, from his writings and the things he did, that he really did have some good intentions. Mm-hmm. Although, from the Iroquois perspective, he probably wasn't the the hero that the Hurons make him out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so next time we're going to talk about the Dutch because the Iroquois realize, all right, we're getting shellacked here by these French guys with guns. So then the Dutch show up on the Hudson River and start trading with the Mohawk, and they say, you've got guns? Yeah, this sets up a great opportunity for the Iroquois to start making alliances with these other European countries that are at war with the French because the French have now allied with the Montagnier and the Huron and the Algonquin. So now we're going to start seeing alliances with the English and the Dutch with the Iroquois. And now, you know, this is setting up pre-French Indian War strife between all these different countries. And some of the Native American nations are going to try and manipulate the Europeans to do things they want. And at the same time, the Europeans are going to try, oh, we can't do that. But if you guys wanted to go in there and attack that French settlement, you know, I might give you a gift unofficially to do it. 
Uh, so we're going to start talking about some of the early conflict with all the other European nations getting involved and trading with the Dutch next week. We're also going to try and get out another uh, traditional legends one within the next week or two. So I look forward to seeing you all again, and we will see you in a couple weeks. Let me tell you a story. This is a story of two brothers who had a dream to create a somewhat okay podcast. Now these two brothers dedicated dozens of minutes a week in research and reading, and then at least 15 minutes every other week to record the podcast. But nobody was leaving reviews on their iTunes. And soon enough, the banks found out and they took their home. And the brothers were forced to wander the streets alone. And with no power outlets for their Macs, they could no longer record the podcast that they love. So while you sit on your couch at 10.30 in the morning, with your Cheeto-stained shirt watching daytime TV. And you think to yourself, it's okay. I like the podcast, but there's no reason for me to leave a review because somebody else will do it. But guess what? Nobody ever did. You know, Caleb, you could have just asked nicely like every other week.